0: From American Exception, I'm Aaron Good, and we have a very special episode today. Here around the 50th anniversary of the Watergate arrests, we are rejoined by two luminaries, both brilliant men who have very deep connections to actual major events surrounding the conspiratorial mess that we collectively refer to as Watergate. The two men I'm referring to are Daniel Ellsberg and Peter Dale Scott. I would recommend to everyone that you read Ellsberg's two memoirs, Secrets, a Memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, and The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear Planner. Additionally, everyone should watch the Oscar-nominated documentary The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. The books and the film are fantastic. To give a very truncated summary, Daniel Ellsberg was a Cold War prodigy who graduated at the top of his class at Harvard before working in the national security state with a very high security clearance at the Pentagon and at RAND. Ellsberg had extended stints in Vietnam where he worked under legendary covert operator General Edward Lansdale and in Washington under Robert McNamara. Among other things, he worked on the Cuban Missile Crisis and he was there in the Pentagon to deliver the early reports to McNamara regarding the fateful second Tonkin Gulf incident. In the latter years of the LBJ administration, Ellsberg turned against the war in Vietnam and wanted to try to bring it to a close from his position on the inside. He conferred with RFK on the issue and would likely have been the point man on Vietnam in an RFK administration. But as we know, it was not meant to be. Eventually, Ellsberg would work on a RAND study commissioned by Robert McNamara, behind LBJ's back, on how the U.S. got into the Vietnam War. On past episodes with Jim DiEginio and maybe David Talbot, I've speculated that this study may have been the project that JFK mentioned to James Forrestal right before he left for Dallas, a big review that JFK said would lay out exactly how the U.S. got into the terrible mess in Vietnam which JFK planned to extricate the U.S. from in his second term, as Ellsberg points out in today's discussion. The Pentagon Papers, as incomplete and incoherent as they were, nevertheless demonstrated civilian and military leaders had been deceiving the public and even themselves about Vietnam, basically going back to the Truman administration. So in 1971, after trying to unsuccessfully get Congress To publicly debate the Pentagon Papers, and thereby perhaps bring the Deadly War to a close, Ellsberg began leaking the Pentagon Papers to journalists at places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. They were eventually read into the congressional record by Alaska Senator Mike Gravel. Richard Nixon authorized his so-called Plumbers Unit with E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy to break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to look for dirt to discredit him in the media. Hunt was also given an assignment to, quote, permanently incapacitate Ellsberg on the steps of the Capitol using some of Hunt's tough Cuban friends. Happily, Hunt bungled this, and the worst damage they were able to inflict was on Dr. Fielding's innocent file cabinet. However, Ellsberg was eventually charged under the Espionage Act and was thus facing a huge prison sentence. His trial had begun, and people like John Kenneth Galbraith testified on Ellsberg's behalf. As an expert on Laos and Vietnam, Peter Del Scott was called to testify, but he had to request a rain check because of his UC Berkeley teaching schedule. Before Peter could add his testimony, the case was dismissed owing to the gross misconduct of the Nixon administration. And yet somehow the war went on for another four years after the release of the papers. Around this same time, as American Exception listeners know, Peter Del Scott had been doing groundbreaking research on the very explosive issue of the CIA's involvement in the Southeast Asian heroin traffic. He wrote a big article on this subject and mailed it to Ramparts magazine. But unfortunately, the CIA apparently intercepted the article and Peter didn't see it again for 50 years until I found it online after the CIA posted it on its website, along with some cover sheets featuring redactions but enough still there to see that it was discussed at the deputy director's morning meeting. Shortly afterward, Peter got a similar article published in Earth magazine, that would be in 1972, after never hearing back from Ramparts. The article was accompanied by a poem on the subject by Allen Ginsberg called CIA Dope Calypso. This drug angle is very relevant to many enduring mysteries of Watergate and the Nixon administration. To try and summarize this perfectly is impossible, but basically Nixon's rise was aided by, among other things, his connections to the so-called China lobby of the Kuomintang Nationalists in China, or Nationalist China, Taiwan. These parties were deeply involved in the Southeast Asian heroin traffic, and thus when Nixon launched the war on drugs, he was, knowingly or unknowingly, antagonizing some of his top backers, as well as the CIA Old Boy Network that had established the post-war Golden Triangle heroin traffic, with help from British and American spies, financed in part by Wall Street elites. As Peter Del Scott would go on to flesh out over decades, this even predated the creation of the CIA through a strange outfit known as the World Commerce Corporation. So when Nixon declared his war on drugs and tried to establish a new agency to replace the BNDD, the Bureau of narcotics, and dangerous drugs, using people like E. Howard Hunt to recruit Cubans and other characters for this new Nixon-controlled agency, it undoubtedly set off shockwaves of fear and paranoia in powerful sources, impacting the way Watergate unfolded in ways that we can't clearly summarize or surmise to this day. Peter's work on this angle and other aspects of Watergate is all outstanding. He greatly influenced my treatment of Watergate in American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, and my book does come up during this discussion. We have an extensive, wide-ranging and ongoing oral history series with Peter Dale Scott at the American Exception podcast. I would recommend that people with an interest in these subjects check out Peter's books. Coming to Jakarta is probably his most acclaimed work of poetry. And I would say that a great entry point For his work in history and politics is The Road to 9-11, Wealth Empire, and the Future of America. I hope that this was a helpful introduction. Now let's hear this discussion with Daniel Ellsberg and Peter Dal Scott around the 50th anniversary of the Watergate arrests. Daniel Ellsberg, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, glad to be here. And Peter Del Scott, it's great to have you back here. I'm looking forward to this. So Watergate is is still a mystery many years later, and there are many aspects of it that are obscure. It is, uh, it's known that the Pentagon Papers, leaked by Daniel Ellsberg, were a catalyst for the Plumber's um, and what Nixon was trying to do with uh, establishing them to stop leaks. Um, Dan, have you come to any difference or or what? what's your assessment of why the Pentagon Papers were so explosive that they would lead to this kind of leak? Or were there other factors involved besides the Pentagon Papers that would lead to the creation of the plumbers, I mean?
1: Look, I think that the usual story I'm very consensual now about three things, Uh, Nixon's Vietnam policy, my own actions with respect to the Pentagon Papers and other secrets, and Nixon's crimes against me are each misunderstood very much. Uh, And uh, in fact, they're very closely related and their interrelationship is almost entirely misunderstood. As as Haldeman said in his book that he wrote in prison, uh, Nixon's chief of staff, who was one of the uh, almost 30 people in the Nixon entourage that were uh, indicted, as he said in prison in his uh, uh, book that he wrote called The End of Power, Ends of Power, he said that without Vietnam, uh, Watergate would not have happened. And he points directly to the Pentagon Papers. But I don't think um, he, I'm not sure that he understands and he certainly doesn't tell all of the connections between um, me, the Pentagon Papers, Vietnam, and Watergate. He does refer to the formation of what came to be known as the Plumbers, a special investigative unit working in the executive office building next to the White House in 1970. One And, uh, in fact, contrary to what you just said, their job really wasn't to plug leaks very much. It was, more importantly, to leak, to gain information that they intended either to give to the newspapers, um, as Nixon put it, about me. He said, I don't want him tried in court. That doesn't matter. I want him tried in the press. Get all the information you can on him. He said, leak it out. Leak it out, those are the words. Uh, Is it not the directions you give to plumbers ordinarily? In fact, the actual origin of that almost never seems to be remembered now is that uh, David Young, who worked for Henry Kissinger, who was seconded to the Special Investigator Unit, told his mother that he was in a unit that was plugging leaks and she said, "Oh, your uncle was a plumber," uh, and uh, and that led uh, young to put a little sign on their door, "Plumbers." I read um, it was his grandfather, but uh, yes, uh, that's the standard story. Actually, I'm sorry, uh, it was his grandfather. you I've heard that it was his grandfather, but the but essentially, what you're saying is the standard story, not the, of uncle, the origin of the term. The- from David Young. And I want to talk a little bit later on about David Young, who is usually forgotten in this, you know, it was Young and Krogh were heading the plumbers. And for the sins of the plumbers, Ehrlichman went to jail, uh, Krogh went to jail, and David Young went to Oxford and became an Oxford don. He, He represents what you might call the deep state establishment side of what I think was a coalition, and he came out of uh, John McCloy's law firm, which of course is very closely allied with the Rockefellers. And I think that Nixon, when he when this thing was set up, it was set up to balance what you might call what uh, Carl Oglesby at that time talked about the Yankees and the Cowboys, and uh, the the East. Uh, uh, some people have said the. The East Coast traders and the West Coast uh, Prussians—that there was it was a coalition that was heading the, uh, the plumbers and their activities—and Young was clever enough to get Krog to sign the order for the break-in at Dan Ellsberg's psychi- psychologist's office. So that way, we think about uh, Krogh go- and he went to jail and uh, Young made a deal where he became a cooperating witness and was not touched, just like his boss Kissinger was not touched for any of the crimes of the Nixon administration. That's right. But I must say, uh, my impression is that Young got himself off, as you say, by cooperating with the FBI. There's a, uh, the story of that it, on the record is actually almost funny. Um, I'm not aware that Young particularly pressed that burglary on Krogh. I think they Hunt suggested in the first place, and having noticed uh, that I had a psychoanalyst and that he had refused in the FBI reports to talk to the FBI, and that Hunt had first suggested this, um, possibly to Colson, by the way, that he gets into this. But anyway, suggested it, and Krogh and Young, I don't think, had to be persuaded too hard. Krogh was worried about the uh, possibility they might be caught. He was more nervous about it. But when they gave a memo to the um, boss of the, we'll call them plumbers now, because that's what they came to be known as, John Ehrlichman, the domestic counsel to the president. It was uh, to get the files of Nan Ellsberg's from his psychoanalyst, and at the bottom is often they said uh, uh, they had boxes, agree don't agree and Ehrlichman had written on this, uh, agree check that box on your assurance that the white, this is a paraphrase, that the White House will not be revealed, you know, as connected I think this word was on conditions it is not traceable That that it is not traceable and yeah, in okay. fact, yeah. Yeah. What, what they did—they this—I think—is very relevant here to point out that they did everything they could to make sure that it was traceable. Hunt took a picture of Liddy in front of Fielding's office, Fielding's okay. okay. name, okay. Let's
2: with come, the license
1: me. of his car in the in- inside of the office. Yeah. Uh, okay. Did you know, by the way, Dan, that the the uh, Filing cabinet that they broke into that contained your file is now on display at the Smithsonian in Washington. Yes, I known they've had it for a long time. And occasionally they have displays of it. I, I just learned that today. Yeah. I was <laughs> um, okay. So Ehrlichman said, on your assurance, that whatever that it is not traceable. So when uh, Watergate broke, and then when the investigation started, at some point in there. Um, Ehrlichman asked Young to check the files and see if there was anything very incriminating and, um, in the letter, you know, that they had, they hadn't yet shredded. So Young brought to him this piece of paper with, uh, J D E, I think it is J E anyway, uh, initials on your assurance that it is not traceable. And so, um, uh, Ehrlichman said, uh, I'll keep this. He said, it looks a little too something like incriminating. It looks possibly incriminating. And he, thereupon, or it might even have been at the same moment uh, or later, clipped off the handwriting by John Ehrlichman at the bottom of this uh, document. With a nail scissors, so it was rather uh, rather uh, <laughs> ragged edge there, and when it came out in the in the files later, in the files, the committee, they, they mentioned the point that uh, a comment is made on the fact that someone seems to have put something off this. But in the, the interesting uh, exchange that I remember closely, but uh, I paraphrase, is this: that Adelman said, "This looks a little too incriminating," and Young says. Well, there might be a copy, and uh, Ehrlichman says we'll just have to take more chances on that Well, Young had a copy he had made a copy, and that was his major bargaining tool uh with prosecutors to uh reveal that because that enabled that was a key thing then in the prosecution later of Ehrlichman on this of his boss. And then, so he got off. Young got off from, uh, I, I believe he he testified on this, but he got off from being indicted for this um, revelation, which was quite critical. Young then went to England to Oxford, and for years thereafter, no one could communicate with him except through his don, uh, who always refused any who refused any um, contact. There was no interview in the entire, all this time from then till now, there was no interview of David Young, who was actually in effective charge of the plumbers operations against me and others because Crowe was so, was the nominal head uh, of him, but uh, he was more involved in quote drug matters, especially in Southeast Asia. Spent a lot of his time on that. And, um, there was another guy sitting in the room with a special investigative room named Walter Minnick, who was working on that full time.
2: Oh, and yeah, what I've
1: learned right. more recently is that Hunt uh, was more involved in that. And I, I, I've learned in the last week looking at this. Minnick was also working on drugs. That's what he said. Yeah, And yes. Minnick was working full time on drugs. And he was another mystery man. It was, the, You know, he was the name yeah. that you saw every now and then, but. Should have been high profile in yeah. the hearings, and late Young wasn't. So, if there's one person who is an encyclopedia of uh, information that we don't have, it's David Young, who is still alive. And uh, I, Krogh told me before he died that uh, he was in touch with Young, and that Young was back in the country from Oxford. I always wanted to talk to him, but um, I don't. He's he's simply not uh, contributed in the head been asked to contribute in any way ever since then. We're going, we've gotten off here now. Uh, why did, uh, why in fact was Nixon ordering or directing or Ehrlichman under him or quoting him crimes against me which were critical in the end, to finding out further crimes as they pursued these, and then uh, critical to the impeachment proceedings, <coughs> uh, which led to Nixon's resignation. Why did Kissinger call me the most dangerous man in America? I've almost never been asked that question. No one else almost seems to have asked it. Why? Uh, what were they afraid of? The Pentagon Papers were out. They ended in 1968 before Nixon came into office. They didn't incriminate Nixon. They did have a lot about Eisenhower when he had been vice president. But I think Nixon's name hardly hardly arises in that context. Uh, Arguably, in- it was helpful to Nixon because it was dirt on on the Democrats, really. Yes. Was the- so, uh, uh, as Kissinger's first reaction. Uh, on Sunday, June 13th, when the Pentagon Papers uh, began to be published in the New York Times, his reaction, it helps us a little bit because it shows that this is a Democrats war and that they're responsible for it. And indeed, uh, that's what it does do. And it was a major uh, immediate factor in my mind uh, in copying them and giving them the so-called Pentagon Papers what we generally call it the McNamara Study, and what its official title was, I think, History of U.S. Decision-Making in Vietnam from 1945 to 1968. It was a 7,000-page, 47-volume study done uh, at the direction of
2: Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara um, in the Pentagon, which. I
1: copied uh, in 1969, starting on October 1st, 1969, and gave in sections to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Fulbright, and uh, on the understanding that he was going to hold hearings uh, on these, uh, which were, seemed necessary because I, I know that documents are far from telling the whole story. On uh, almost anything, they're written for a variety of purposes, but uh, not simply to tell the full truth of what's going on. And I felt what was necessary were congressional hearings that would call the people who had written the memos or who had received the memos, who had actually drafted them, not just signed them. Uh, and uh, ask them well, why was this written? What came of it, and so forth, and you, which would reveal a lot more than the written documents actually conveyed, and probably in some cases very different. So, because some of those, for example, were written as briefs, essentially to convince people like the joint chiefs, uh, or possibly the public, or the State Department, whoever, who didn't want to pursue this policy, to sell it to them in a way that would do it not necessarily revealing what the grafter or his boss actually uh, felt was at stake here. In fact, they gave, I knew, a very mistaken impression of my boss in the Pentagon in 64-65, John McNaughton, uh, former Harvard professor, now assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs. I was his special assistant and saw everything that came across his desk, almost everything and uh, knew his views very closely. I saw him every day and knew that the Hawk impression that he was giving in these memos was almost the opposite of what he himself believed. He wanted to get out of Vietnam. He did not want this bombing to start. He did not want to send any troops. And yet here he is giving rationales for sending troops and for the bombing and so forth to McNamara because he was writing briefs essentially for what McNamara wanted or felt, or McNamara felt he had to concede to the Joint Chiefs. And uh, it gave a false impression both of McNaughton and of McNamara. In fact, so false. Uh, and I, was, I felt very close to McNaughton, who died uh, just as the study was getting underway in 1967. I'd been in Vietnam for two years at that point and had just come back. But uh, if he lived, uh, I have to say, I'm not sure I would have chosen that instrument to try to help end the war because it would be too wrongly uh, in, uh, incriminating to, to McNaughton. Uh, he was, in fact, as was I, culpable of uh, participating in an aggressive war, a you know, crime against the peace, and in war crimes in terms of the bombing, but not as it happened because he actually thought. They would be good for U.S. policy, but because his bosses uh, wanted rationales for doing what they wanted to do. So anyway, I hoped in uh, '69 when I started copying these, that they would reveal to the public that four presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, had systematically lied to the public and to Congress on uh, nearly every aspect of what was happening in Vietnam, uh, what they what they foresaw as the results of their actions, what their actions actually were at any given time, how many troops they were actually intending to send, what the prospects were, which were very dark almost from the beginning, uh, as to any success there, and um, uh, the public then had been in the Congress had been manipulated into supporting a war effort that, in fact, uh, for, re- for reasons entirely different from what the public was led to believe. And I hoped that by revealing this, it would at least lead, it might do two things. In the, My first hope was that it would lead Nixon to drop what I understood at that point to be his secret plan and instead to end the war and to blame it on the Democrats, saying, "Look, it was a noble cause, but they mucked it up. They did it all wrong." Certainly, the Pentagon Papers gave him the basis for saying that, but uh, and that would uh, allow him to move away from what I understood to be secret plans that he had set in motion, which he had not yet revealed. Changing. Now, it didn't have uh, it didn't come out at that point. Uh, for the reasons good uh, going to Fulbright didn't hold the hearings, so they had no effect at that time, and he went on with his secret plan. Now, let me get to what I think is the most is the is the most misunderstood aspect to the Vietnam War uh, in its uh, Nixon phase. He had campaigned that he would, as he put it in some times, end the war. Other times he would say, win the peace, with honor, never spelling out what his conditions for honor uh, might be, or exactly how he planned to do that. He said, I have a plan to achieve this during the war. Uh, He wouldn't reveal it. And it was often referred to as Nixon's secret plan. Well, most people, uh, even scholars to this day, not all, Uh, say that was simply a campaign bluff. He had no plan. He had no secret plan. That's false. He did have a plan. He did keep it secret. I said it the way I did because he never used the two words together, secret plan. But he did have a secret plan. And he carried that out. Uh, He attempted to carry it out. And it, it was only partially successful. But uh, to a significant degree, it was successful, much more than people realize, I think, to this day. I understood from my friend Lord Halpern, in, uh, then in the White House, who had come over from the Pentagon, who had been in charge of the Pentagon Papers in from 67 to 68, and uh, the beginning of the Nixon administration. Then he moved to the Nixon White House as a deputy to Henry Kissinger, and
2: I, at the beginning, well, let me go right to what I think the plan was.
1: Based on what Lord Halpern told me, and to some extent on what my friend John Paul Van, an official in Vietnam and a close friend of mine, also told me, basically, those two sources. I concluded, and I understood, that Nixon did not mean to end the war or win the peace, that he did not really have peace in mind except uh, in the most hopeful possibility. Uh, he meant to end U.S. ground involvement gradually, or if the North Vietnamese proved to be very cooperative fast, He meant to get U.S. troops out of there in his first term. In fact, it turns out he hoped that he would uh, achieve a deal where they got out even much faster than that in the first year or so. That didn't happen. But in his first term, they would be out. But that a pro-American, anti-communist regime, essentially our puppet regime, would remain in power through his second term. Without U.S. troops, how was that possible? I would have said impossible at the time, politically and militarily. And actually, it turned out to be possible at the cost of uh, uh, 21,000 American troops and no doubt much more than 10 times more than that in Vietnamese terms. I don't know exactly the casualties in Vietnam, In those years, very high, but uh, that was a price both in U.S. and certainly Vietnamese terms that Kissinger and Nixon were very willing to pay for their strategy. Okay, how were they then to keep Tieu or someone like uh, Tieu would come initially to power through a coup, and then through rigged elections in office? in Saigon, which would remain Saigon, not Ho Chi Minh City, in a divided Vietnam, that is South Vietnam, not united with North Vietnam, for eight years, without U.S. troops that whole time? And the answer was uh, twofold. His first and major objective was that there would be no longer any North Vietnamese troops there it would begin coming in in 1965 under Johnson, and were now uh, many more of them in uh, Vietnam in 1968-69. Uh, Get them out of Vietnam, back to the North, out of South Vietnam, uh, as U.S. troops came out, a mutual withdrawal. And that would be induced, he thought, by threats to North Vietnam that if they did not meet these terms of mutual withdrawal of troops, he would resume the bombing of North Vietnam that Johnson had stopped just before the election. And it would be much larger than before, including probably the use of nuclear weapons. And he was making threats through the Russians and then directly to the Vietnamese in negotiations of the use of nuclear weapons, starting, it turns out, in the spring of 1969. I didn't know that at the time, but I did feel that if he was refusing to allow the unification of Vietnam under communist or coalition control uh, and was uh, uh, intending to keep a lot of troops there uh, most of the first term, that would lead, I felt, felt to a North Vietnamese offensive again, or whatever, which I felt was rather likely to lead to nuclear weapons, both in the north and possibly even against China. And actually, pretty much that did occur. Um, if Nixon and Kissinger's threats uh, had any influence, uh, or I mean, uh, their, their basic aim. Was it at the most to prevent, I'm sorry, was at the least to prevent another North Vietnamese offensive um, like that in Tet Offensive in 68 from happening, especially in Nixon's first term, preferably ever. And in fact, there was an offensive in 72, the next election. So in that sense, their threats had totally failed to prevent that. They had also failed. To get North Vietnamese ever to agree to mutual withdrawal, and they never did agree to that. So the uh, the North troops stayed uh, at high level in South Vietnam um, until the end of the war in 1975. So he he failed at that. However, Thieu did stay in office even longer than Nixon, as it worked out. I think that without, uh, I believe that without. Watergate removing Nixon from office, uh, two would have remained in power through 76 and possibly under the next president much longer. And that brings in the final element of the strategy. Although the U.S. troops would get out and thus U.S. casualties would go down almost to zero, U.S. air would remain for those eight years and could be renewed by the next president. Uh, in other words, Nixon hoped to turn the conflict into one that where two and other anti-communist uh, pro-American leaders, commanders, would remain in power in the cities, uh, which had most of the population by that time in the coastal areas of uh, Vietnam, conceding most of the countryside. To communist control, the less populated part of the country, but larger in territory. That's why, uh, with that concession, Nixon didn't think of this uh, as a complete victory, uh, but as one that involved a good deal of concession on his part. Thought reasonable, but that the U.S. representatives basically could maintain power cheaply from the point of view of the Americans, without American casualties, without most of the money involved in paying the troops, with U.S. air, And this is uh, exactly the situation we did achieve in Afghanistan after uh, uh, Obama had withdrawn most of the troops. Uh, and from then on, over a most of a 20-year period uh, we were holding on to the major cities of Afghanistan without the use of. US troops essentially but with. US air and drone We had Libya and Syria where uh, air was essentially a hundred percent of what we did yeah now this is uh, corresponds very closely not not coincidentally with a doctrine, the supposed doctrine that Nixon announced in 1969, which he he wanted to be called the Nixon Doctrine, which was pretty much. uh, I'm not aware that people have in mind any example of its being put into practice, although Afghanistan would be a a perfect one, where the ground troops on our side of a conflict are provided by locals. Uh, The French call them when they're Colonial operation and Dijen people, indigenous people who, who live there, or at any rate by people other than Americans, uh, and we would supply the ground, the air power, and the um, uh, money, uh, which might or might not, and in, in all these cases, not prove to be totally victorious, to be rolled back uh, the other side, but would hold on in what amounted to a stalemate at war to the major cities, so that, uh, among other things, and very prominently, no one could say the president had lost the war. They might say that, uh, as in Afghanistan, that uh, we didn't win the war. This is before we pulled out now. We didn't win the war. We weren't winning the war. We weren't going to win the war, but we weren't losing it either. We controlled Kabul New Afghanistan few other cities, Kandahar, and so forth. Well, in South Vietnam, uh, by the way, uh, the, it was much more urbanized than Afghanistan ever was, and most of the population was in the coastal area and in the, in the major cities that he uh, planned to control. So, I think almost no, well, what even I, I was studying this for half a century, didn't quite notice Uh, until much later, that the policy that I understood him to be following was the Nixon policy for Vietnam. When he mentioned it in uh, in a news conference in 69, I think it was presented and almost everybody took it as something to be followed after Vietnam. We're not going to do this again. That is commit huge numbers of ground troops especially in Asia or in the underdeveloped world. But they were there now. I mean, that's not Vietnam. At the point he announced that, we had about 500, almost 500,000 troops there. Actually, what nobody realized was he had in mind achieving the Nixon doctrine or implementing it in Vietnam. That was his Vietnam policy, to continue the war, Uh, eventually, cheaply, and indefinitely, indefinitely, between the Saigon regime and the communist-led forces, both from Vietnam and the NLF, the more southern uh, guerrilla forces, indefinitely. uh, It was just possible, at the most, that they would back off for some years and make things quite peaceful. But that was uh, didn't happen, of course, and uh, came, I think, less and less to be seen as a possibility. But it would be a war in which the armed forces of Vietnam, so-called our puppet forces that we were paying, equipping, uh, paying for their training, and providing with all of their arms, Arvin, they were called Army of the Republic of Vietnam, you know, would be able to hold off uh, both the North Vietnamese troops and the uh, Southern troops, the National Liberation Front, from taking any of the cities, from making Saigon Ho Chi Minh City, uh, with the help of U.S. Air. By the time of uh, 72, actually, we had made the Vietnamese uh, Air into what was called the third largest air force in the world, in terms of numbers largely uh, helicopters and small planes and so forth. So it wasn't really like a Russian Air Force or a U.S., but very large. Didn't it, That was not true in, uh, under Johnson. But even so, I think no one imagined that they could handle the Northern troops and others without United States air. But with U.S. air, uh, friend John Van, who was his expert on this militarily as any one, as any one person in Vietnam. Always thought, uh, with U.S. air, Arvin can do the job of U.S. troops. Uh, He said, they don't run, they don't fall apart when they're attacked if they have air support. And that's pretty much what they don't do, offensive operations, which don't do anything for us anyway. Don't find uh, the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, Unless they want to be found and want a battle, which is rare. Uh, those operations the Arvin doesn't do, uh, the, the only defensive. But when they're attacked, they do what the US armed forces do call in US air support. And they do that as well. So Van was saying already in 68 under Johnson uh, we could let most of the US troops go home, not all of them, but right now, right away. he was almost fired. Uh, from Vietnam, General Abrams in charge, very much wanted to fire him for that leak, for that statement. But uh, because he was so valuable to them, they held on. So what I'm saying then is that, and this is something I, I almost only realized in these terms as I was thinking about this program actually, you can really describe all of the President's policies in very similar terms. Namely, No president, including Nixon, who people thought was elected on a different basis, that he was going to end the war promptly at whatever cost, just get out, pretty much. He didn't. And another question that is almost never asked is, given your understanding of what he was doing trying to get out of Vietnam, why did the war go on for six years? Why did another 21,000 Americans die Uh, by 1973? People don't ask that. The answer is, uh, I think, though, that his intention was not to get out of Vietnam under any terms. He never intended to take U.S. air out of the picture in his eight years. And this is very similar to all the previous presidents. None of them, with the exception, I believe, of Kennedy, was willing to to think at all of Saigon becoming Ho Chi Minh City and, and Vietnam becoming unified under communist control, as in Hanoi, in his two terms, assuming so he had two terms. I believe that Kennedy did, was the single example, and go as to why that might be, who did foresee that he would get out by 63, that he would get out in his second term. But I think that uh, Johnson and and would allow uh, basically a coalition government to emerge, which might or might not come under communist control quite shortly in his second term. My my strong belief on this now after studying it for half a century is that Nixon did not contemplate that uh, for eight years, nor did any of the others. That Johnson was not going to accept that ever. And of course, each of them pursued a course, keeping, it, keeping in Vietnam as cheaply as he could, pretty much, uh, without any real prospect of defeating the communists totally, that is, of establishing Saigon control over every part of Vietnam with the NLF, the uh, National Liberation Front, the guerrilla forces, putting down their weapons or even joining Ireland with the North Vietnamese troops going home and so forth. These were always defined as what would constitute a victory, but there was never really any prospect that that could be achieved by what we were doing. So and that was from Truman on, where, where the French did the fighting, and then uh, Eisenhower, where Vietnamese troops with U.S. advisors, uh, not too prominently at the beginning, uh, would do the fighting uh, and uh, with only, uh, without even any uh, air support, but with our support, they kept held on to it. They did not, not one of them, including JFK, lost Vietnam, as the Democrats were charged with having done with China. And uh, they didn't
0: lose Vietnam. That was the, the major objective. They succeeded. So so do you think that the the creation the reason that the pentagon papers cr- create such a panic that they would take this risky step of creating the, the plumbers and doing these other yeah. activities that this was because the vietnam the leak of the pentagon papers and other materials that you, that you had that we could you could mention but that this threatens their strategy uh, of trying to to, to maintain a a presence in Vietnam.
1: Yes and no. Um, The Pentagon Papers suggested, well said, that four presidents had pursued such a strategy uh, without ever, ever uh, hinting to the public that each of them was essentially pursuing a stalemate strategy that had almost no prospect of winning. And until Johnson really at fairly low cost in U.S. lives or money, um, and that that might uh, suggest that uh, Nixon was following in their footsteps. But it certainly didn't prove it. And in fact, he was saying the opposite, that he was going to end the war. And no one could imagine a way of, of ending the war that did not amount to uh, accepting the major Hanoi terms, which were at a minimum Departure of U.S. military involvement entirely, meaning both ground troops and air, just U.S. out of the conflict, and at least a coalition government uh, in which they were represented. And they came to insist, and in which Tew was not represented. There would be uh, people other than communists, -communists, non-communists, even perhaps people from the current government regime, but not Tew or people close to him. Okay, so why were they panicked by the Pentagon Papers? They were not. You know, the Pentagon Papers really gave them more than it took. Um, it uh, it did plant things on the Democrats. It was embarrassing to the Democrats. In fact, Nixon wanted there to be hearings in Congress on the Pentagon Papers and tried to achieve it, as I did, uh, because he thought it would be far more embarrassing to the um, Democrats than anything else. They were, Nixon, however, understood within several weeks of the Pentagon Papers coming out that I had other documents, some of them from Nixon. And um, Nixon's uh, White House, which meant Somebody meant to them, somebody who was feeding me the other documents from the Nixon administration, they didn't know what. It could be anything, and specifically, it could be these secret plans which were known to very few people in the, in the White House, but were known to a handful of people working for Kissinger and, uh, and Nixon. Now these Most people in the Pentagon did not know of these plans or CIA. But I might, in particular, because as of 1970, uh, four people in the uh, NSC staff, uh, plus Lord Halpern, who was then a consultant, all resigned over Cambodia. And they could have taken with them documents and either shared them with me or given them themselves on his secret plan, Um, which, as I say, was more like the other's particular Johnson and the public realized, but certainly the public would not have supported in 69 or 70 or 71 because they were based on nuclear threats and just threats of enlargement. Uh, And the nuclear threats were not carried out, although they were discussed seriously in 72 in particular with the offensive. But the escalations uh, were carried out in Laos and Cambodia, and those had been foreseen and threatened as early as 1969 so this was a a plan a strategy aims and means the means of threats that uh was very secretly held had to be covered up i threatened the secrecy of that plan and if it became known publicly it would Uh, almost surely have been repudiated, even by many Republicans, as well as Democrats. And um, so it it had to be kept secret if you were carrying it out. From that point of view, I was a national security threat in the sense that I threatened his military diplomatic threatening policy in Vietnam. And as Engel Krog said, the chief, the nominal chief of the plumbers, When he pled guilty, uh, I saw in the White House the president's freedom to carry out his plan, whatever it was, as the essence of national security. And I was threatening that freedom because by exposing it, I was going to make it almost infeasible to carry that out. And he wouldn't achieve his goal. Uh, Moreover, so I had to be stopped from other revelations. Uh, In other words, I think the criminal acts against me had almost nothing to do, or nothing to do really, with the Pentagon Papers themselves. They were out. They spoke for themselves. Even discrediting me uh, did nothing other than perhaps uh, discourage other people. But I was already on trial facing 115 years in prison. So uh, there was a good deal of discouragement out there already from from following my example. So, Aaron... You you suggested that it it was the Pentagon Papers that led to the creation of the Plumbers. Uh, I don't know. It was no, precisely not. Yes, I was going to say that the prospect of putting out other secrets. Hunt goes into action on behalf of the White House as early as April, 1971. The papers weren't released until June, and what he does in April, I think, is very relevant to the story that we're going to try and lay out here. He goes to Miami and gets back in touch with Cubans that he had known from the Bay of Pigs and tells them that there's going to be jobs for them working for the White House. But that's and, uh, that's, not, that's not the plumbers per se. it's no, an me, operation that I think you're right. Dan, under. It was let, a hunt operation. Let me finish, Dan. I think that what... Uh, Nixon also wanted, quite independently, I mean, I'm not disputing a word of what you said, but in addition, Nixon knew that he had issues with the CIA, and he did not like depending on the CIA for intelligence. He wanted slowly but surely to develop his own intelligence force that would be responsible to the White House, which is the kind of way that Nixon thought, and to take a very long view of it, something like that eventually happened with the creation of the Drug Enforcement Administration, and that is why the 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 fact that so many of these people connected with the Plumbers, Krog, Liddy, etc., that they they were involved in narcotics already. I think Nixon's vision was. <coughs> I will develop something that has the nominal purpose of uh, being an intelligence network on drugs, but will be my network. And that was created, it was, it was I mean, <clears throat> the, the timing was, was fortunate for them in terms of Dan and the Pentagon Papers because they had started things just three months earlier but it did start before the Pentagon Papers were released. I just wanted to get that in. And I'd just like to say in support of what Dan was saying that what he was saying about Nixon's strategy for Vietnam was also a strategy for Laos. Laos, a very peaceful country that should not have been on anybody's highways, but the the Joint Chiefs had wanted to put 60,000 troops in there in 1961. And it's quite obvious that the reason they wanted that was that China would not have tolerated that and it would have been a chance, therefore, to get involved in a shooting war with China, which they wanted to resolve with nuclear weapons. Well, that was uh, a shadow that continued. The amount of bombs dropped on this peaceful country of Laos is comparable to what was dropped in Europe in the whole of World War II. And with an army that was not able to do anything, essentially, except again hold the cities, which there are very few in Laos. There are two, really, the there are two capitals, and that's about it for cities, except for very small regional towns. I just want to well, that in. Uh, Kennedy, I think what you've said, Peter, is very relevant to the Joint Chiefs' position on this whole operation. In fact, I suspect, and this is a suspicion, that the reason for wanting to do this enormous operation in Vietnam, which they were proposing from, to begin with, to some extent in 61, but especially from 64 on, before the election, uh, was, this is a speculation of mine, was with the idea of getting into a war with China, which would be conducted with nuclear weapons and which would finish the Chinese communist problem uh, one way or another. Uh, I think they wanted war with China, which Johnson very definitely did not want and Kennedy did not want. So they were posing, as you said, as early 60s, going into Laos, and -hmm. that was very hard to rationalize except as the way of getting into war with China. Again, Kennedy, A did not want, and B didn't want to use nuclear weapons uh, in that connection. So we we agree on that. Um, and, but the to the of, chiefs. this, this uh, outlines the suspicion that, that you know that it was a very paranoid presidency at a very paranoid period in American history. And Nixon psychologically was paranoid. But just about everybody in Washington was paranoid in that period, I think, and the, the Joint Chiefs, in particular, were very paranoid about what Nixon was planning. So you you end up with the uh, the Radford incident, where the uh, the uh, the Pentagon actually recruits somebody to spy on Kissinger and get his garbage. Uh, his wastebasket material back to the Pentagon. Um, uh,
0: if I if I can if I can jump in here just to sort of as a segue to this, and then you can continue. This is this other bizarre paradox of Watergate, which is that while this struggle over Vietnam policy is is playing out at the same and is is integral to under to to what was going on with Watergate, you also had. The paranoia of of right wing figures about détente, and the fact that the central actors, or many of them, in Watergate were anti-détente people to the right of Richard Nixon, and so this is this is also something that has to be understood. And you're mentioning the R- Moore Radford affair. And the fact that they were spying on Kissinger is certainly relevant here. So what is the significance of detente? Can
1: can I uh, clarify what I said? When I said I think the Joint Chiefs were interested in uh, almost throughout in the possibility, certainly in the Johnson era, era of uh, a nuclear war against China. I don't have any impression that Nixon wanted that any more than Johnson. And the threats he was making were, were essentially threats against North Vietnam, using nuclear weapons in North Vietnam. And as Eisenhower had said to Johnson as early as 1965, if the Chinese come in to the Vietnam conflict, you must use nuclear weapons against them if they come in. But Johnson was very anxious not to bring them in, and he kept... Uh, and therefore, and uh, the multitude policy. was too. I, I, th- I think the Chinese also were very careful not to get the yes, yes. and they they sent a lot of a lot of troops it turns out more than we we realized at the time, I think into North Vietnam to help in logistics and air defense and various things, but fairly covertly. Uh, I don't think we were even correct me, Peter if you know otherwise. I don't think we knew at the time they had as, as many as they did, which might have been as many as 30,000 or something. But they did that covertly, and they did not enter, you know, with troops, as they did, for example, against North, against Vietnam uh, later. That, so they the, the corollary to that is that it was very much part, when Johnson started bombing North Vietnam, that the harbors where the Russians and the Chinese ships came in, Hanoi and Haiphong, were nearly always off limits as a general rule. And if they, uh, if Johnson announced that they were off limits, then the Air Force somehow accidentally managed to break Johnson's uh, prohibition on bombing and would actually not just bomb Haiphong, but would bomb uh, Chinese or Russian ships in uh, the Haiphong harbor, which is an indication. This is under Johnson. You know, 66, 67 was a big, a big time of this. That was a core of my book, *The War Conspiracy*, that came out in '72. Was a whole chapter, which just listed on the one hand when Johnson was, you know, it was always tied to Johnson trying to look like he was searching for peace or he would halt the bombing altogether or something, or he would be very strict about not bombing Haiphong. And that's when the Air Force would accidentally strafe a a Russian or a Chinese. Well, I think that fits in to something I think the anti-war movement never did appreciate, and to this day, really, uh, which was that had Johnson followed the advice of the Joint Chiefs, almost at any point, or Kennedy, uh, from 61 to 68, the war would have been very much larger than it actually ever became. I think the anti-war movement, seeing the, frost, the you know, casualties in North Vietnam and the South, which they weren't quite as aware of, uh, thought we're, we're killing as many people as we could. That was far from the truth, although the Joint Chiefs would have been glad to do that on the example of World War II especially LeMay, who had carried out vast massacres of civilians in World War II. And his chief of staff of the, of the Air Force would have been very happy to do it again in North Vietnam.
0: So uh, Jonathan was
1: actually holding down, uh, with the help of McNamara, a crucial help of McNamara, holding down what they were actually doing. And as Peter has said, the, the, the Joint Chiefs, and in particular the Air Force, chafed against this month by month and year by year and uh, violated his restrictions when they thought they could get away with it or to the extent they wanted a bigger war, which they thought had some chance of actually winning and you know causing the other side to give up and uh, give total sovereignty to the Saigon regime in South Vietnam or even, who knows, overthrow um, the North Vietnamese regime if we got back into heavy bowing. But the uh, civilians were not that ambitious. They weren't, indeed, trying to, they were not doing what the Joint chief said was necessary to a victory. And Johnson and McNamara knew that. They did have a no-win strategy. It was a no-win and no-get-out, as far as Johnson was concerned. And that meant an escalating stalemate strategy. As we achieved in Afghanistan, without escalating, actually, the the Taliban or remotely, you know, the uh, the the challenge that uh, the North Vietnamese... To bring this up to the present, General McMaster, who ended up being the national security advisor for Trump, wrote a book about the Vietnam War in which he practically accused the Joint Chiefs of that era of having, well, he he definitely did accuse them of having failed their responsibility, that because once you're fighting a war, then the Joint Chiefs should make the policy and not the civilians. And it was a great failure of people like Abrams and so on that they listened continuously to advice from the White House. They ought not to have done it, And it was that policy that earned him the support of a group of people inside the Pentagon that he ended up being a national security advisor for Trump. So it's very ironic that uh, Trump is the one president, I've said this before, where we didn't invade some foreign country that had done nothing to us. And that is a pretty outstanding achievement. When you look at the list of all these other presidents, many of whom, like Obama, were well-meaning, but ended up supporting operations like Libya or the, the escalation in Afghanistan, which uh, have given America such a bad reputation in the rest of the world. Yeah. The, uh, to, to make a couple of other conferences, I'm not aware of a single active general who was actually in favor of attacking Iraq. Uh, they There were retired generals like Kagan and Keene, I think, or others uh, who were in favor of that. But I don't think any active person thought this was worthwhile, but they went along with it, and they didn't leak. And the Joint Chiefs, on the other hand, in Vietnam, very different. They wanted the war. They wanted a bigger war. Uh, we've hinted it at what, what may have been, I think, uh, Laos was almost surely an excuse to use nuclear weapons on China. And Vietnam, I think, may well have been in their minds an excuse. At any rate, it was a risk they were more than willing to take. And Johnson was not. But uh, he was giving them enough of what they wanted that he was taking some risk, but not as much. So in the case of Nixon, I'm not aware the, the opposition there, you uh, <laughs> indicated, came most was similar in that sense that the trade chiefs did not want to see detente. In the effect, they did not want to see agreements that might threaten the arms budget, uh, either with Russia or China, and Nixon was giving them both. And uh, therefore, their policy of detente was anathema to uh, many people, certainly in the JCS, and I think uh, some in CIA, and Peter knows more about that uh, than I do, but undoubtedly, some people in the CIA were also very against that. McCord, for one, I was just very, very opposed to that. And McCord was extremely right-wing. I think, I don't I don't think, McCord is not a typical CIA officer. He was from the security office, and he was from inside the security, the office of security. He was the security research Service. Hunt was from there too, and I think that's probably relevant. And, uh, Howard Hunt was also from the SRS, the Security Research Service. The ma- and the boss there, Paul Gaynor, he's a bit like Angleton. Both. both Angleton was more more of a spy against this. He was in counterintelligence, looking for moles. So that really meant, from the point of view of the average CIA officer. He was someone spying on the CIA to make sure that it hadn't been penetrated. Officer security is a bit different. They just want to make sure that there isn't somebody who's threatening the security of the CIA. But they were very right-wing. Hunt Hunt and uh, McCord essentially shared a kind of right-wing philosophy, which I think was probably quite – well, I mean, I don't know, but – uh, I've seen other examples of it from the office of security and from from uh, the counterintelligence staff. Uh, and whereas uh, people like uh, Helms and uh, the people who were running the agency, I think, were more part of what you might call the deep state general philosophy of you know, you know coexistence coexistence with the Soviet Union had become. There was a debate right after the war that maybe we should have rollback and uh, undo, you know, liberate Eastern Europe and so on. No, I think most of them wanted a stable system, which they already had. And I think that Hunt and McCord did not like that stable system, but I don't think they spoke for the whole of the CIA in this. What I'm saying was that the crimes against me, which figured considerably, in facing Nixon with impeachment and led to his resignation, and thus, uh, and thus made it possible to end the war. Basically, uh, we'll come back to that. But all of those were directed not because I had released the Pentagon Papers, but because they knew I had other documents on Nixon that might reveal the Nixon secret plans uh, on that. And the plumbers, I think, were formed, looking at exact of when they were doing it, especially when they learned from Senator Matthias, a Republican, but liber- a liberal Republican uh, from Maryland, informed them on the day the Pentagon Papers began to be published that he had top secret documents from me that were from Nixon's National Security Council. He didn't tell them what they were, which I think was also crucial to their effect. They feared that it could be anything. The um, plan, the secret threats of '69 against uh, Hanoi, uh, against the Hanoi regime, and uh, their plans for escalation, mining Haiphong, possibly going into Laos and Cambodia, possibly invading at least the southern part of North Vietnam. And uh, it was at that point when they realized, uh, just at the uh, just uh, that. Uh, that the, Matthias had these documents. They didn't know what they were at that point, that they formed this group, which had a number of uh, missions given to it, including pinning the ZM assassination on Kennedy through forged documents, if necessary, interviewing uh, uh, Ted Kennedy, or rather, people who might know about Chappaquiddick. Uh, he still thought of Ted Kennedy for, as his major rival. Uh, for 72. And uh, Hunt was used in part, as Peter knows, to interview a guy who might have information on Kennedy, which he turned out not to have. They did various other opera- they did a number of covert operations. No, but Dan, I'd like to talk about that. You're talking about Hunt's uh, interview of a man called Clifton DeMott, who was supposed to know things about Chappaquiddick. And we know quite a lot about that, but the reason we know quite a lot about it because it that material was fed to uh, Woodward and Bernstein, but not uh, uh, it, it, it came from the Mullen agency where Hunt, when Hunt retired, he he, he, it, he nominally left the CIA. He didn't really leave the CIA. He went to an agency called the Mullen Agency, that did PR for big corporations. Uh, A lot of the biggest, like uh, the Howard Hughes Corporation, were actually uh, corporations that also did business with the CIA, and that all became part of the Watergate story at a certain point. But we know that uh, it was Hunt's, Uh, Hunt suggested to Mullen... Well, Hunt told... Colson. came to Hunt and said, you know, we want you to work for the White House on this. Hunt told Bennett, I will be working for the White House, getting dirt on people. And it was Robert Bennett in the Mullen agency who suggested to Hunt, well, you might want to interview Clifton DeMott. And at that point... Hunt said yes, but I'll have to get a disguise. And so he got a voice-altering apparatus, and he got some kind of moustache or something—a facial disguise from the CIA, making sure that he had. If if he got caught in it, he would be able to say, "Well, you know, I'm doing this for the CIA." But it didn't come from the White House. The idea to interview. Uh, Clifton DeMott came from Robert Bennett and the knowledge that Woodward and Bernstein had about it also came from Robert Bennett. So that's why I've always said that I think that, the, you know, we we learned a great deal about uh, the XBI, ex-FBI agent uh, Gordon Liddy uh, you didn't hear anything, and you and you heard that eventually that, uh, um, well, I have to, I'm have careful on the dates here. I just want to hold to the fact that the this is one of the first things that Hunt did on behalf of the White House, but he did it on a suggestion which came from the Mullen Agency, which is essentially a CIA cover agency, which was then leaked by the person who suggested it to Woodward and Bernstein. But Peter, isn't it clear that uh, interviewing Clifton DeMott was for the purpose of helping Richard Nixon's re-election by undermining Tech Kennedy, as were the dealings with the ITT and Tita Beard and so forth. All of that had to do with hurting uh, the and there, there were other cases, with hurting the Democrats and helping Nixon. So they were not with the, uh, any objective of... Um, I would be more convinced of that if Clifton Demart had actually known something. But uh, it turned out he knew nothing. So I don't think it was very helpful to Nixon. I think it was very hurtful to Nixon in the long run because it became part of the Watergate scandals that were blamed on the White House, and I'm just trying to say this particular scandal should not be blamed on the White House, and suggests to me that there are, I think, multiple uh, axes being ground. Or, or I don't know what the right metaphor is, but the, the you know the the simple story that we've been told for decades and are still being told was that Nixon involved the CIA in dirty tricks. And when they were exposed, he tried to blame them on the CIA, and that was false, and he rightfully was saying, well, you know, there were many reasons why Nixon could rightly have been deposed. There were a lot of abuses of power in many directions. But that simple story, oh, yet yeah, and so to sum it up, Nixon eventually had to resign, not because of the break-in, but because of the cover-up. And uh, the cover-up, the cover-up the, uh, particularly the smoking gun interview on June 23rd, when uh, Nixon called in Haldeman and said, tell Helms this involves the Bay of Pigs thing, which Haldeman understood to be a reference to the Kennedy assassination. And I think if if we want to go there, we could develop a lot of evidence that Nixon was indeed very worried about the Bay of Pigs thing. There had been a series of Jack Anderson columns that, uh, in uh, 1969 which uh, attracted the attention of the White House and generated memos this is before the plumbers, of course, but they generated memos inside the White House, including one memo from somebody who said, if I were you, I wouldn't go there because that will open up a lot of doors, which in the end it did. Well, Nixon uh, essentially resigned because of his having told Haldeman to tell Helms uh, to get Walters to go to Patrick Gray at the FBI and tell him to stop interviewing people for 15 days. People forget it was for 15 days. That wasn't in the papers at the time, but uh, they, uh, they did. Um, but the CIA did, I think, have its own concerns, and we know that there's at least one uh, CIA memo that I've never seen anyone refer to which is, you know, when Colby came in, eventually as the, uh, as the, the new uh, DCI, head of the CIA, two people in the office of security came forward and said, you know, the CIA lied to the FBI, and that's a crime. And what was the lie? The, the, uh, the, the
0: uh, White House...
1: Had learned no, the press had learned that very belatedly that there was a fire at McCord's house after McCord was arrested, when somebody called Pennington went in and helped McCord's wife burn a lot of documents, which was McCord considered incriminating, and that's uh, interesting in itself. Well, the the uh, Though the FBI asked the CIA, who is this Pennington? And the CIA sent them a file on a Cecil Pennington. But that was the wrong Pennington, and the CIA knew it. Well, that was a crime. The CIA lied to the FBI. It is a federal crime to lie to the FBI on a matter of FBI business. And when later uh, the whole question came up in the wake of Nixon's resignation, Uh, Question, uh, there were two successors to Helms put in by Nixon. Uh, The first one was uh, Schlesinger, um, and the second one was Colby. Schlesinger came in from outside the agency, and he was looking for possible errors or crimes committed by the agency and became so unpopular that he was, it said that he had a security guard with him at all times because he was worried for his own safety inside the CIA headquarters. And then you had Colby, who was from inside the agency, but shared the philosophy that excesses had been done and it was time to begin to reign in the agency and collaborate more with Congress and that got him fired. And some people, you know, let's not go there, but he died very mysteriously. And some people think that he may even have been murdered. This is long, long after Watergate. Uh, but the, the fact that the CIA was covering up by giving the, uh, the FBI the wrong Pennington suggests to me that the CIA as well as Nixon had things to worry about when the when the break-ins were exposed. Well, pardon me, uh, it's not just a suggestion. We know very well from the record now and what I've been saying. Uh, CIA helped Hunt in the break-in to fielding break-in and in all these other matters. They helped them all together. They didn't all come out all at once. Yes, they had lots to hide, and when... The crimes of Watergate or the break-in came out. Uh, the CIA was, whatever else it felt, was very anxious to hide its own involvement in all of these things for obvious institutional reasons and personal individuals who would be personally incriminated by this. So I make um, a distinction, Dan. Yes, the CIA had a lot to hide, uh, but uh, I'm. I, I'm, I've just, uh, in the course of reading a book that presents the FBI, an FBI perspective on Watergate written by a man called John O'Connor, who is, you know, typical FBI material, or an Irish Catholic went to a Catholic university. That Hoover's FBI at one point was really an army of Irish Catholics Versus the Protestants who went to Ivy League universities and then into the CIA, that was sort of the tension in the 50s, which was roughly in a kind of equilibrium until just before Hoover died, when Hoover got very angry at the CIA, cut off links to the CIA, and then Hoover himself died on May in May 2nd of 1972 and you have a complete state of chaos in terms of interagency relations. And I don't think you can have a full discussion of Watergate without being aware of this very special state of of, of chaos between agencies and with inside the FBI because you had two prominent uh, deputy directors. One was William Sullivan, uh, Walter Sullivan, is it, or William? Help me, Aaron.
0: Uh, it's Williams, William Sullivan, the guy that got shot because he was Sullivan. Mistaken, mistaken for a deer. That's it's William, William
1: Sullivan. Sullivan, who, who uh, got named in the Watergate hearings, was forced to resign and told a friend very pointedly, if you ever see that I'm dead in an accident, know that it wasn't accident, know that I was murdered. And about 18 months after he made that statement, yes, he was shot because somebody thought he was a deer in the woods of yeah. New Hampshire. But anyway, the relevance of all this, I think, is it has a lot to do with the fact that these things did come out. There were leaks, and there were not leaks about other things. Um, uh, all of this had to do with this uh, jockeying and uh, avoiding accountability. But I think it is mistaken, as is often said, that the problem with Nixon, what got him was the cover-up. The cover-up was, indeed, every aspect of it was obstruction by justice, whoever did it. So that's a crime anybody involved in the cover-up. For example, Dean uh, was practically running it. But um, uh, people ignore that they had a lot to cover up. that had to be secret. And I think it was at least as much what uh, they were covering up as the fact that they were covering up something which did involve lying to people. But they were covering up very clear domestic crimes. Also, international crimes like bombing Cambodia. But that was dismissed. Yeah, by, yeah, they uh, tried to offer that as a reason to impeach them, and they, they struck that one out. These mass killings of other people, no, that we don't have on that. They wanted a bipartisan uh, vote in the end, and they couldn't get the Republicans to agree that massacring Cambodians was uh, something that the president was not actually free to do on his own, whether it was a good thing or not. So um, the, but the other things, like the burglary, but also the attempt to incapacitate me totally on the steps of the Capitol on May 3rd, uh, things like that needed to be covered up. And people who said, oh, Nixon, his mistake was he didn't just clear the books, uh, you know, tell the truth early on, get it off, ignoring that he really couldn't do that. There were a lot of crimes that he was implicated in, and his high subordinates uh, were definitely all implicated. He had to keep coming Excuse me, Dan, but I I was about to make a point about this book by John O'Connor, the former FBI agent. He was also, at one point, Mark Felt attorney, and Mark Felt was the man who has now been identified as the FBI half of deep throat there was always more to deep throat than uh, the uh, than, than Mark felt because Mark felt for example didn't know anything about Clifton DeMott. that was something that happened in a CIA cover agency I want to get to the to uh, uh, something that Dan was talking about yes the CIA, had things to cover up, according to this is the FBI philosophy of a man who became a quite major lawyer. Uh, uh, that uh, and this this involves uh, actually the, the, the American exception, the theme of Aaron's book, which was that there's always in any constitution an area which cannot be handled by the laws, and you have to. Have some kind of arrangement for dealing with the exception. And he has a quite uh, a history of what Aaron, you would call the exception in America, going back to George Washington and how he accepts that, as an FBI lawyer, that the, the CIA, what the CIA did in support of Nixon was okay because it goes back to Washington. On his own initiative, fighting the whiskey rebellion in Pennsylvania in seventeen ninety eight, is it? Uh, I, I'm not sure of the. Who, who is the he we're talking about here? Who is he? You want to say? Uh, Marco John John O'Connor is the author of this book. I'm trying. I'm trying to give the his thesis. He wants to say who is responsible for Watergate? Was it? Was it uh, Nixon? Was it the CIA? He says both. Is this the book you're talking about? No, actually, I want to read that one. That's Postgate. I'm talking about, uh, I want to make sure I get it right, The Mysteries of Watergate. It's a sequel. They both, I mean, I'm sure he says the same in Postgate because I think it's worth listening very seriously to his thesis, which is, yes, there is a realm for things not covered by the law being done by agencies, and the trouble the CIA had was that they were authorized to do it abroad, but they were very, very limited in what they could do domestically. They could only do things which were protecting their own uh, uh, their own operations and and sources. Are you talking about CIA? When yes. You the CIA well, is uh, limited domestically. but limited within, le- Legally, but in practical terms, although they were nervous about it, they did help hunt on what they understood perfectly well were domestic operations that were illegal for them, including the profile of me. No, and Dan, also,
2: uh, you won't other, let me uh, say,
1: teachers. Dan, that's what I'm trying to say. John O'Connor would say that too. He says that the CIA did something that was legal they went to Nixon and said, uh, "We will." Well, I don't think they said it that way, but they they sent at, at least maybe two people, maybe more, but with two people, one would be Hunt, and another one would be the man who casually mentioned that there was a taping system uh, in the in the White House office, and. Uh, This, from the point of view of this FBI lawyer, was perfectly okay. The CIA was within its rights in getting Nixon to authorize these operations. But now we come to a distinction that needs to be made. That did not cover, from his point of view, the CIA lying to the FBI. That's a different kind of crime. Yes, yeah, yeah, they do approximately every day. Am I wrong? And just just let me finish, and then, and then you come in at the end of it. Um, all these other things.
0: I'll edit out. I'll edit out this cross <laughs> no,
1: note, I don't by mind, the, way. So. the the all the things, and there are many of them, and, and so many of them absurd. You know, the the the, the mustache, the voice altering equipment, and so on. Uh, Those were domestic operations, which, according to the charter, uh, of course, the CIA should not have been doing. According to theories of the exception, uh, this man is quite happy. He's an FBI man. Yeah, they can do that as long as they have the White House to authorize it. Lying to the FBI, from his point of view, is a different kind of crime, and I think the courts might support him in that.
0: This also, the other issue of whether these organizations ever adhered to even their own charters, I mean, James McCord was involved in the assassination, which seems a summary execution of uh, Frank Olson. And so this issue of who wields this power to act this way is seems to be right at the heart of Watergate in the biography of some of these actors and also The bigger issues of who has the power to say when the law can be broken, Nixon's assertion that when the president does, it is not illegal. Doesn't seem so much worse than the idea of the CIA or FBI being able to assert that, if anything, at least Nixon was elected. So this, this seems to be a, a real key issue involved in the, well, all different power struggles. Well, I'm glad of you brought that, different the power murder,
1: murder, of course. When you say he was involved in it, he was involved in the, what you may call the cover-up. I don't think anyone's accused him of actually doing the murder. He came him in to clean it up, and uh, it came from the Office of Security. That's exactly the sort of thing that they do. But he's a very, very heavy... High-level operator because this uh, this was uh, I don't know of any other uh, act of murder committed by the CIA in support of their operations back then, but to bring it up to the era of Watergate, um, the, uh, I, I, the 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 book this uh, by John O'Connor attaches a lot of. Importance to the fact that when Dorothy Hunt flew to Washington with $10,000, uh, the plane she was in was blown up by an electronic device. And, then, uh, and 43 people were killed. No, I think 43 on the plane, two more on the ground. 45 people were killed. It's terrible that Frank Olson was murdered, but if that plane was blown up by an electronic device, then there's a, a, a 45 people died in connection with Watergate. And that is something that is not investigated at all, really, even though, and it's quite big in the O'Connor book, a man in Chicago who supplied electronic devices for the Watergate break in and for other materials, some of which these devices were to beam to a CIA satellite. Well, if it are into to sat- a CIA satellite, this has nothing to do with the plumbers at all. It's, it's something purely CIA. And he said, Dorothy Hunt was coming to me with that $10,000 to hush me up. And uh, he reported this to Mark Felt, And he reported to Mark Felt also, I'm getting, uh, 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 no, he reported to the FBI, but it came to Mark Felt. He said, I'm getting threatening calls on the telephone, and I'm scared, and I want you to do something about this. And as O'Connor said, he threw himself uh, on the mercies of the FBI. And the timing here is very interesting, because Uh, There are two FD302s, which I would love to see, and I don't know if they've been released or not, about this case. And on the same day, somebody in the FBI, and John O'Connor, who was Mark Felt's lawyer, says, likely Mark Felt. So if he's saying likely Mark Felt, I think I would like to say very likely Mark Felt leaks them, and he can't leak them to the Washington Post because they're telling a totally different story about Watergate. He only gets a little rag in Chicago called the Chicago Chicago Today, and I'm trying to find that on uh, on the Internet. I would like to get those news stories, and there are only five references to the to uh, Oh, his name is Mike Stevens. That's a pseudonym. But they, they starting with Jim Hogan, they always use the, the pseudonym Mike Stevens. He says, I'm being threatened. He's saying that she was bringing me that money for me to to hush me up. This is all a CIA scandal. So he goes to the FBI. Mark Felt release, leaks it on May 14th, May 16th, and on the night of May 16th, Woodward tells us that Deep Throat came to them in a kind of panic and said they were going to kill us all or something like that. And a day after that, Lou Russell is poisoned. So uh, on May 18th, I mean, after uh, uh, Deep Throat says this in an Mm. alarmed way, and he said it involved all the agencies and Woodward writes how he, he wrote down on a piece of paper so it couldn't be overheard. To to, to Bernstein, he wrote CIA. And I think that those, those dates, the, uh, the, the, the Stevens, FD302s, the immediate leaking of them, but likely by Mark Felt, Mark Felt telling a thing we're, we're, we're all at risk and then Lou Russell, who would tell the audience, is the so-called sixth Watergate burglar. The one, there were six in the Watergate that night, and one of them wasn't arrested, but he, he got drawn in later, and then shortly after that, uh, he took a pill, which he thought was his heart medicine. He said, I've been poisoned, and it took a week or two, but he died, and that was the day after uh, Mark felt in, in alarm had this very long, I mean, it's very dramatized in All the President's Men, the Woodward, Bernstein book, but it's obviously a turning point in their relationship with, with it. Yeah. And all these facts, I think, are relevant to Watergate, but most of them did not make it into the Washington Post or mainstream media account of things that, uh, you know they felt leaked it he leaked it to a tiny local paper. There is a photograph of the Indianapolis star if you in my Google search for the Chicago for this whole business there's a, a portrait of it but it's a very expensive paywall if some of you want to paywall you can get that page in look so, so would, that would be one more that would make uh, a total of six references in the whole of the internet to this episode that's extraordinarily few Uh, three of them trace back to uh john uh, john o'connor one is totally irrelevant one is extremely relevant which is the fbi watergate file which somebody got on the foia and put on the internet the problem is but what they got is so badly reproduced, so illegible, that this very relevant reference of the Watergate files is absolutely useless. You see the name Michael Stevens. You see one or two hints that it, the FBA 302s we're talking about are there, but uh, you, you can't use it at all. So maybe somebody will get on their horses and do a foil for those FD302s, or maybe they've been released. I don't know. I'm just reading this now. I'm quite excited by all this.
0: That is fascinating, and I, I'm going to look but more into it. I, I can't. I don't know that I even wrote about the Dorothy Hunt aspect of Watergate even though it's, it's, it's relevant in that whole, that whole plane crash. But I do mention that the, the Russell heart attack and the deep throat conversation on May 16th and 17th, where he's saying, you know, people are all going to die more or less. And he says the covert activities involve the whole of the U S intelligence community and are incredible. The cover up had little to do with Watergate, but was mainly to protect the covert operations. And so that aspect of the, of the tug of war between the people trying to get Nixon and and then Nixon uh, using um, the Schlesinger to dig up all the dirt on the CIA that he could with the family jewels, uh, this is all extremely uh, relevant and fascinating and and uh, seems to be at the heart of some People
1: who were trying to get Nixon, at what point are you saying?
0: The, the, the people that are leaking to Woodward and Bernstein are people who are Against the Nixon White House and and McCord in jail seems to be taking an. Am- is that I mean, true he Felt seems to want- he
1: wanted to be number two under Nixon. To he wanted to be, I'm sorry, to replace Hoover, uh, preferably under Nixon. Uh, is it true that Felt wanted to uh, see Nixon removed?
0: Whether he wanted to see him removed or what exactly his full plan was is hard to say, especially considering that he is. Con- that most or a lot of people think he is but one aspect of Deep Throat. But he did seem to be, he was seemed to, when he was speaking to Woodward and Bernstein, he was putting out information that was damaging to the Nixon, to Nixon, to the Nixon White
1: House. It certainly damaging to the Nixon White House. And actually remember, if I'm not mistaken, um, the actual break-in, the things that uh, Woodward and Bernstein looked at, in particular, the break-in was not part of the charges against Nixon, was it? In the end of the impeachment, because they couldn't show, unless I'm mistaken, tell me if I'm wrong, Peter, but I, they could not prove it. To, they could not prove it to Nixon. In fact, they didn't know to this day, in a way, who authorized that break-in or what the purposes of it was. So it did not play a role directly. In the charges against Nixon that led him to resign, on the other hand, uh, there was lots of evidence that people below Nixon, including Haldeman and uh, Ehrlichman, ultimately Mitchell and others went to prison for it, uh, were involved, but they didn't. Uh, that didn't necessarily threaten Nixon. If you hadn't had things that did not relate directly to Nixon, he would have stayed in office. And I believe, and this is the point I'm making, that I think almost none of the Watergate made me. What would have been the difference? Had he stayed in office, I believe, among other things, that the war would have gone on in the air. He would have resumed the air in April 15th. According to Time magazine, he had ordered the resumption of air after the American prisoners had come home in February and March. He had ordered the resumption of error and then had to rescind that when John Dean on April 15th revealed to the prosecutors the direct involvement of the president and mentioned the fielding. He'd already talked about that, but the fielding break-in specifically having come as my former psychoanalyst office, at which point Nixon understood he was going to face an impeachment fight, and he didn't want to have to fight on the issue of resuming the war. And thus, at that point, it didn't get resumed. And then, thanks to the way Watergate evolved, uh, it never did. And Ford was not willing to uh, go against Congress, which had cut off the money for the bombing by that point. Nixon, I believe, would have ignored that by Congress and would have uh, vetoed it anyway, and they couldn't break his veto. So, the war, the effect, for good or bad, of uh, this chain of events in which I played a part, only uh, with a lot of other things that came along, uh, did play a role in a chain of events that got Nixon out of office, which was certainly not my expectation or aim. Uh, although I had been told by Mort Halpern it was necessary to for the war to end, for uh, Nixon to have a successor. Nixon was not going to end it and i what i'm saying is i didn't foresee any way of bringing that about after the election in 72 yeah Dan, i think this is worth pursuing though because uh, in the end the nixon strategy depended not just on having Andy Gen, a local army but someone to pay for them and that was the us congress i don't think i think sorry, I, what i'm sorry say i'm sorry. you were saying no. that the nixon doctrine involved using Local yes. troops, the ARVN, and yeah, air power and money, yeah, uh, the, the, and uh, the, the, there is no Vietnamese economy that's going to support that army. It's got to be supported by Congress, and yeah, I think right. I, I think it's this point needs to be made very strongly that that war was doomed from the day it was begun because it was not winnable. And at a certain point, it was going to become domestically intolerable, just like Iraq, just like Afghanistan. You can't win these wars, and somebody there will come a point when you have a scene like Saigon in 1975 or Kabul in 2021, when it looks just awful, just terrible. But that was always in the cards. And even if Nixon had been in the presidency and the war, I'm sure he could have kept it going at, at least to 75. That's but 30, what ended 30, the war, se, uh, not, I'm saying he could have done it at least to 75, but yeah. that the, what really ended the war was an act of Congress saying, no, we will not pay for this war anymore. And that was not because of a presidential decision. That was because the, the pressure from below, from the anti-war movement, had become so great that they, they had to end it. I agree completely uh, up, up to that point, Peter. Uh, Congress cutting off the money uh, was an essential link in that chain. It was not just getting Nixon out of power. It's it's but by the way, as Lord Halpern has pointed out, that was subject to presidential veto, and they, which he would have vetoed, yeah. just as Trump vetoed congressional cutoff of money to Saudi Arabia uh, in the last year of the Trump, and Congress couldn't override that veto. Congress would not have overridden a Nixon veto on that. So he had, because of the Fielding brick, and because of the Watergate events altogether, that had to be covered up, uh, he had to drop escal- uh, resuming the bombing, and uh, and 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 could not afford to fight on two fronts, impeachment and the war. So in effect, he postponed at least uh, resuming the war, and could uh, he have? Kept the war going through seventy-seven, not seventy-five. Had he been in office, do you disagree with that? No, no, no. I can't. I cannot possibly predict the date it would have ended, but I think I can predict it. Yes, the, the president would have done everything, and maybe an, even a Democratic successor might have done everything to keep it going as long as possible. But it would have ended, and it would have ended uh, long before now. Just as I can say. Oh, I I think great. I don't think it would have lasted probably more than the 20 years that Afghanistan lasted, or the 10 years that the Soviets kept in an unwinnable war uh, in Afghanistan, or the South pursued an unwinnable war after Gettysburg and so forth. People don't give up wars. Syria is now a 10-year war. Exactly. We're still. Fighting, but Biden is still fighting in Syria, and Syria. Is how continuing. long will Ukraine? How long will Ukraine? Oh, continue? I know. We should be very worried we, about this. Neither is either side going to win that militarily. I don't think so. Maybe one will get tired after ten or twenty years. Well, I would say you know, in some wars you don't see the solution. Ukraine is a war where there's a very obvious solution, which is a part of the country which speaks a different language worships a different religion, should be allowed to separate. And you can have a UN plebiscite to determine what the boundary should be. But the, the, the delineation of the peace agreement is crystal clear. And what we need is, and I think Washington is the, 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 the place That's what I'm saying, Peter. It's not acceptable to Washington or to the Western, uh, to right wing factors in the West, mm-hmm. and therefore, It's not going to happen. uh, Until we get an anti-war movement. Yes. Uh, Let's come back to Vietnam. I don't think the anti-war movement did end the war. It was essential to keeping a ceiling on the war, I would say. And it was one element. It certainly affected the congressional voting, which was an element. But Nixon, uh, what ended the war, what made it endable by Congress, was Nixon being out, and Ford was not willing to fight Congress on that. Nixon would
0: have. So I'm saying I agree with all, all of that. I, you know, know.
1: I agree with all of
0: that. But that? Yeah, we're, we're getting close to the uh, being pretty much out of time. And, uh, Peter, I think that we're going to revisit some of these issues uh, in future episodes, because especially related to Watergate, there's, there's so much uh information here and Jim Hogan's going to come on eventually and there's going to be other things to talk about with Watergate but while Dan is here perhaps the the a, a question that we could sign off on uh and and Peter we can revisit some of these themes later but this bigger question of of Watergate and lawlessness and I'll just throw this to you, um, Dan, because it relates so much to you, this, the memoir secrets and the issues of government secrecy. And then the, the issues raised by the way the, the Pentagon Papers was, was, shows Vietnamese, shows the way the US conducted the war in Vietnam with so much deception. So this is a longer way of asking is, is criminality and deception, is it possible to run an empire? without this kind of lawlessness from the state that we see in the, in especially it's most obvious in the nixon administration but it's not at all quarantined there so is this is this kind of lawlessness just of a piece with empire in general and the u.s pursuit of global dominance or what With all, with with these decades to reflect on this what's your takeaway from the lawlessness of nixon and the lawlessness that persists <coughs>
1: I'm not aware of what I could just say yes to your question uh, in terms of international law. Uh, it I'm not aware of it legitimizing empire or certainly the way empires are created and sustained, which involve actions of various kinds, massacre, torture, um, breaking of treaties. If there are any treaties, uh, the, um, uh, empire is sustained by coercion, which is not legitimized by law, uh, to my knowledge, and certainly not since the Second World War. After the uh, Even the UN Charter did seem to recognize uh, colonial operations, at least as trusteeships or something, to some extent, but uh, that's faded away. So... There is no law constraining these people internationally, uh, effectively at all, that I'm aware of. Now, even in, it seems, even in autocracies, uh, total autocracies, even uh, the leaders find it convenient and maybe even necessary to lie to their people as to what they're doing and and why they're being asked to uh, send troops. Uh, here and there to be killed, to die of foreign fevers and foreign shot and shell, as uh, Justice Douglas put it in the Pentagon Papers case. Uh, yes, every all of these wars have involved lies to the public by the by the US as a democracy. But not only the US, every empire does that. I don't think uh indiscriminately we're not we're not better or worse than the others, except in one respect that we've used the threat of nuclear annihilation, uh, almost exclusively until now, where uh, Putin is now borrowing that instrument from our playbook and making what amount to 1st use threats to keep us from intervening directly in Ukraine. So, but he's just imitating us. So we're not in a position to say that's outrageous to put the whole world at risk of nuclear winter over what you see as your rights and interests in this conflict. And by the way, what are those now? I would say there is a choice between you know uh, winning and losing, and that choice is called stalemate and keeping the war going, avoiding losing at the cost. Of other people's lives, and because it's a conflict, and it's going on. I would say, by the way, both sides are using that now, and all their accomplices on everywhere in the world. People are taking one side or the other, uh, as opposed to ending the war. Now, uh, Peter says there's <laughs> there's a clear solution. To whom? To Biden? No. Uh, the uh, and is even Putin uh, willing at this point to uh, limit himself to Eastern Donbass. We don't know. We're not negotiating because uh, Nick, uh, Biden has no current interest in negotiating now. And uh, anyway, that's, that's the Ukraine problem. But getting back to Vietnam, a friend of mine, Jim Thompson, who, who was one of the very first whistleblowers, actually, um, from the Johnson White House, said later under Nixon, he wrote an op-ed uh, paraphrasing and countering General MacArthur's statement in Korea when he was removed uh, for having proposed the use of nuclear weapons against China in Korea. And and Truman fired him, uh, an act that he paid for politically uh, for a long time. And when MacArthur came back, he said to Congress, there is no, in war, there is no substitute for victory. Well, um, Jim Thompson wrote an op-ed in the Nixon years for the New York Times, uh, which included the sentence, in some wars, there is no substitute for defeat and uh, to, get it, to get it ended. And I think it could more properly be said, uh, in some wars, there is no substitute for an outcome that some will call defeat or surrender or appeasement or cowardice. And, and that's the truth. Uh, no substitute. We said no substitute for defeat. Adam Yarmolinsky, the special assistant to McNamara earlier, and pretty much on the dovish side, said to Jim, "You can't say that," and he kept him from doing. You cannot use the word defeat as an acceptable, uh, as an acceptable answer. Well, actually, there is a substitute for defeat, and presidents prefer it to anything that will lead them to being called losers, surrenderers, appeasement, and that is called uh, pursuing the war nominally to the public in uh, the interest of winning a necessary war, but actually privately knowing that you can't win, uh, that's infeasible, they are pursuing, not losing, at the cost of their own lives, in civilians in the other lives And in the case of Ukraine the possible blowing up of most civilization pursuing that rather than doing something that will be called surrender or or defeat and that's that's true in Ukraine right now but it's it's true in almost any war um, the uh, there's a very few exceptions of mondes france in france being willing to uh, saying i will resign if i have not ended the French war in Indochina, in 30 days. And on the 30th day, he signed the Geneva Declaration, uh, the Geneva for and uh, de Gaulle got out of uh, Algeria, uh, actually. And uh, Biden has finally gotten out of Afghanistan, actually, but that's after 20 years. And it was not a movement that compelled him to do it. Uh, the people inside had lied as steadily and universally as in any of the other wars. It was not whistleblowers who got him out, it was not a big movement. There wasn't a big movement. Because not many Americans were being killed. So it wasn't a big movement. I do not believe that the an American movement would have been strong enough to override a Nixon veto in seventy five with the American troops out of the way. How long could he have kept going, spending American money sending planes? Who could say then? I think two years without any without any doubt in my mind, he could have done it. But how about 20? Afghanistan has answered that question. And, and Biden was not compelled to end it. Biden determined to end it earlier. And he followed Trump, who didn't want to end it. So. Uh, uh, yes, but the war. I think, the war in- saying, I think that's the lesson we have to draw. That's very <laughs> pessimistic, Dan. But the war that we were fighting in Afghanistan. Was was puny compared to the war we were fighting in Vietnam. Because it was puny, it lasted. After the U.S. troops got out, uh, it would have been puny from the point of view of the American public. And isn't that true? Do you disagree really with And them? Then I think it would have been. I think it would have been. I, you know, it, it, at a stretch, it might have lasted twenty years. I think. I think more likely to me, that it could have lasted a maximum of maybe ten but it was doomed. I I just want to make the point it was doomed. Well, uh, all wars end. And uh, is it possible to say that uh, they're all doomed? They have an ending, and at least one side, at least one side is going to be very disappointed with that in the end. But uh, they go on for quite a long time. Uh, You can even argue you stop fighting here because you're getting ready to fight over there. So in a sense... It, you know, you can. I could argue both ways that we we ended in Iraq so that we could stay in Afghanistan. We got out of Afghanistan so that we continue to use drones in Somaliland, Somalia, and places. In a sense, it goes on and on. But specific wars develop a kind of. Uh, they, they're, they're, they're like potted plants. They have a beginning, middle, and end. And these, un, I would say, really unmotivated invasions, well, of course, they're motivated. but uh, the, 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 the case for going into Vietnam, which was an extension of the French, uh, the French got out with the Geneva Accords, which America proceeded systematically to violate and that was so that was an extension of the French War in America. And uh, there was, uh, these things go on, but you cannot, in any particular aspect of it, the Vietnam War as such, you could see it maturing, you could see it reaching a final stage, and then it was either nuclear or fade away, and it faded away. But it was not going to end. In 1975, maybe not. I mean, no, probably not. But, uh, but I mean, there's a lot of ifs here. We don't. I'm know. saying Watergate. Watergate. Uh, once Nixon was out, Watergate contributed the end, end of the war. Of the war. I'm sure, I, it was, I, I grant sure you that point. 30, 30. Totally. Yes. I totally. I agree.
0: Well, I think it's really. Uh, a, a, a wonderful um, privilege to be able to speak to the both of you today. Uh, Dan, you may not be aware of this, but we're going to publish a lost article of Peter's that the CIA, uh, presumably, I'll be more, uh, say this more candidly than Peter, who, who leaves open more ambiguity but I think the CIA stole his ramparts article in nineteen. 19- yes.
1: No, <laughs> okay. no. That's in, very in ni- I,
0: I have read that. Thanks to you, I have read it. Very interesting. Yes, and it's and and uh, and so Peter was publishing this in nineteen seventy, which is an exposure of, of massive government crimes, and uh, the, we're only now getting the the document put out there. And you exposed uh, so much government deceit and criminality with the Pentagon Papers, and the fact that you both are still here speaking about these things uh, so brilliantly into your into your 90s, the both of you uh, and you both, by the way, look very good. I got to say uh, you both look to be very healthy and it's just been a, a great joy to talk to the both of you. So uh, I thank you for a lo- for, what, for what you did in the 70s. I thank you both and for what you are doing by taking the time to, to speak to us I thank you for that also, so I really appreciate well, we the,
1: lead- the, re- the listeners may not have grasped, Peter and I are the closest of friends, right. and in fact, we're going to be celebrating the birthday of Peter's wife tomorrow. <laughs> yes. right. and, uh, so whatever disagreements we may have comes from a many decades, almost half a century of dialogue between us in which I have been the main Learner. Dan, you said know. there's no one that I have learned more from. I say this about Noam Chomsky. I say this about one or two other people, but there are no no one I have learned more from than Peter Dale Scott. I think I met you in '72 or maybe '73. So it really is oh, that's 50 years. Okay. Yeah, and yes, I yeah, agree. It's astounding. My most precious friend. Best per- best person to disagree with that I can think of. There isn't a lot of disagreement. Uh, no. We've come to one of the, one of the rather few. We were, we were debating about dates there. You know, would it be 77, 87? That small, small matter.
0: Well, yes, but it's, it's, it's wonderful, and I, I cherish uh, I, I cherish my friendship with the both of you, and it makes me very happy to know that out there in the Bay Area, you, you both are friendly in the real world, not just virtually. So it's really great. So thank you again.
1: Thank
2: you. Thank you.
0: Friends, I hope that you enjoyed hearing from Daniel Ellsberg and Peter Dell Scott as much as I did. I really can't think of another case like theirs. As they allude to at the end, they are the closest of friends after all these decades. And, if I may offer an inspirational observation, I think that making and keeping close friendships has to be one of the best things we can do to live longer, happier lives. It cannot but help mind, body, and soul. I talked to Peter a couple days after this interview, and he said that the next day, Dan and Patricia Ellsberg joined Peter and his wife, Ronica Batznick to celebrate Peter and Rana's anniversary, in part because it was Dan who years ago introduced them. More importantly for our purposes, Ellsberg and Scott both have these deep and fascinating connections to Watergate and its mysteries. Dan's affair with the Pentagon Papers is well known, of course, Even in high school history books, it's taught. But Peter himself wrote at least two foundational pieces in the early Watergate-related critical literature. Not only was there his 1970 Ramparts piece, On Air America, that got stolen by the CIA, but later published in a different form in that Earth Magazine article, it was also his 1972 book, The War Conspiracy, and his 1973 Ramparts article, From Dallas to Watergate, The Longest Cover-Up, which was probably the first scholarly piece on how there were deep connections between the JFK assassination and the Watergate burglars. Wrote Peter in that article, I hope to show that what makes this Miami connection so dangerous and what links the scandal of Watergate to the assassination in Dallas is the increasingly ominous symbiosis between U.S. intelligence networks and the forces of organized crime. So Peter's work is, to me, a fascinating complement to Daniel Ellsberg's insights into Vietnam and Watergate. As Dan argues, Watergate and Nixon's resignation likely led to the end of a war that Nixon would have sought to prolong rather than losing. However, as Peter has spent decades exploring, the more one looks into Watergate, the more one can find evidence to support the thesis that Nixon's ouster was orchestrated more by right-wing forces. One way to look at it, as I do, is that Watergate was part of the rolling establishment civil war that was essentially settled with the so-called Reagan Revolution, a cataclysm which really marked a heretofore irreversible shift to the right for both parts of our political duopoly. Thus, we have Watergate and its mysteries, which persist and haunt us to this day. A couple points I'd like to make here at the end, and I hope that these don't seem overly trivial. First, as Peter points out, we only know that Watergate burglar James McCord was involved in the 1953 cover-up of what was apparently the CIA's assassination of its own scientist, Frank Olson, a story recently depicted in the Netflix documentary series Wormwood. All that said, I would not rule out McCord also having a role in the Olson assassination itself. It's very unlikely that the men who killed Olson were acting without authorization from people higher up in the Office of Security, basically people like McCord. E. Howard Hunt told the New York Times in 1975 that there was a CIA unit tasked with killing CIA agents or officers deemed security risks. This seems very relevant to the Olson case. And McCord carried out other illegal CIA operations on U.S. soil, notably including COINTELPRO operations against the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, not unlike what Oswald seemed to have been doing in New Orleans, which also led to a post-assassination record being released by INCA, the Information Council of the Americas. And on this record, we hear Oswald in New Orleans talking to two other CIA assets about his misadventures in the communist world. But I digress. The point is, McCord's actions were very odd considering that he previously acted to defuse legal problems by invoking the CIA, but in Watergate, he steadfastly opposed White House attempts to pin the bizarre, still unexplained Watergate burglary on the agency. Lastly, and I think that Peter and Daniel would both support me in saying this, if we want to see how far the country has gone to the right since Nixon's day, compare the treatment of Ellsberg to the treatment of Julian Assange or Vault 7 leaker Joshua Schulte or John Kariaku, the CIA officer who revealed the CIA torture program and for this heroic act became the only person to go to jail in conjunction with those massive state crimes. And the Assange case in particular is very relevant in light of the Ellsberg case. As with Ellsberg, the US took extraordinary steps to spy on Assange, and we also know, thanks to Spanish court proceedings, that the CIA was trying to assassinate Assange. The American state still wants Assange prosecuted or dead, and why? Because he revealed the vast amounts of brutally routine and spectacular state criminality. What kind of government persecutes truth-tellers so viciously? Obviously, this country has a lot of work to do and a lot of hard truths to face. I'd like to thank Dana Chavaria for his audio engineering, Casey Moore for his artwork, and Seamus McGinnis for his work on the video version of this episode. And I would like to thank Mock Orange for providing our music. Please check out my newly published book, which we talked a little bit about with Dan and Peter. Its title is American Exception, Empire in the Deep State. And please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon to hear many more discussions about all these issues pertaining to the lawless U.S. empire. I feel extremely fortunate that we were able to spend some time in the company of Daniel Helberg in U.S. insights or You can tell us to mind the darkness.